Turn to Romans chapter 15. Well, it's really good to see all of you here this morning. And for all of you dads out there, we want to tell you a happy Father's Day. But I will tell you this. Something is missing in the life of a church. I mean, what's happened is today's institution that we call a church has really just kind of become kind of a polite form of religion, and it lacks power. We have a message that says that Jesus will change your life and he will transform communities. But is that really happening? Is that happening? We, uh, we're focused on, you know, well, we want a lot of people in our church, right? Lots of folks, churches, bigger roles, bigger budgets, right? That's all there is to it. But are more people in church really equating to people more pe- being more like Jesus? Do we see people really being conformed to the image of Christ? Our people live differently. Do they have a different set of priorities? Are they finding that they are developing a likeness of Christ and a maturity in him? Well, let me just uh, give you some statistics. And these are just kind of from a different smattering of folks like George Barna, David Kinnaman, Ronald Snyder, just among others. What's taking place among churches? Are there differences in behavior among believers and non-believers. Well, for instance, how about the divorce rates? Now, this is improving, but they are still relatively the same among Christians and non-Christians. The percentage of men who regularly view pornography is roughly the same between Christian men and non-Christian men, and it is a lot. Domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse, and a lot of other problems, they seem to be just about as prevalent among Christians as they are non-Christians. And then let me just have you consider a few statistics among evangelicals. If that's a a new word for you, or you hear it on the news, evangelical, what in the world does that mean? It comes from the Greek word euangelion. That word means gospel or good news. And a person that is an evangelical is one who believes that you have to turn from sin, trust in Christ, and have a personal relationship with him. Evangelicals take the Bible, Scripture, seriously, okay? They believe it's God's authority. So how about among evangelicals? Well, did you know that one in four people living together outside of marriage are evangelicals? I'm going to give it some more. Did you know that only 6% of evangelicals actually regularly tithe or give 10% of their income? Um, Half the people who say they go to church regularly when actually surveyed, actually don't go regularly. They just want to say that. But in actuality, they're pretty sporadic, and they couldn't be in the category of regular. Uh, fewer than one out of five folks that say, we are Christians, actually have biblical uh, values and a biblical doctrine that they could articulate. When you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian from the Scripture? They really can't tell you that. But they like the title Christian. And I'll tell you that it's super popular in the South, right? To be identified as a Christian, to go to a Christian club or to be, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. But what does that mean? Oftentimes, it does not mean that you actually have biblical doctrine. For instance, you believe things that may not be true about Jesus. Like, for instance, there are a lot of Christians that think, well... Uh, yeah, maybe Jesus did sin. I mean, he was after, after all a man. Some people don't even believe necessarily that Jesus is God. And then, of course, you've got folks that 
really kind of say, well, the whole idea of God and three persons, don't know about that. The whole triunity of God, I, I couldn't explain it to you. Not sure it really is true. Certainly don't know where I could even find such ideas from the scripture. And yet they would call themselves Christians. If you ask them, what is the, the gospel? How do you actually make entrance into heaven? What is relationship with God? They'll actually say it, it's really about being good. And that may include going to church, but it has the idea of God rewards good behavior. And if you ask most evangelicals, hey, what has God left you here to do? They'll say, well, uh, we're, uh, we're supposed to be sharing the gospel. But in actuality, very few really do. And I'll tell you why. And that's because we got this kind of rule that we follow here in America. There are two things that you never talk about. You know what they are? Politics and religion, right? That's like a value of ours, and that's how we kind of keep the peace. So we aren't going to talk to fellow classmates and uh, folks that we work with and people in our neighborhood about Jesus because that's one of the two things we don't talk about, right? And yet that's what God has actually left us here to do. It's a major part of what we're supposed to do. Why are we seeing so little life change, so little transformation? Why are so few people developing Christ-likeness? Well, perhaps it's because we're actually not doing what Jesus has asked us to do. Remember, we actually talked about this even last week. Jesus, risen from the grave, you could actually see the holes in his hands. He stood up. In Matthew chapter 28, it's recorded, verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the Lord Almighty on earth and heaven. That's a loaded statement. This is what I want you to do, verse 19. I want you to go, therefore, and what? Make disciples. And I want you to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triunity. And I want you to teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and I will be with you always. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what I want you to do. In fact, I will give you my very presence, my spirit, to empower you to do this. It is intentionally, relationally involved in the lives of other people with the idea that they would grow and develop. And so, like, how could we define discipleship? And I'll just review a definition we looked at last week. It is the intentional and relational process of developing servants of Christ who are maturing in their faith, character, and relationships, and they're investing in others to do the same. That's what discipleship is. It is intentional, it is relational, and we are developing servants of Christ so that they're maturing in every aspect of life and they own now in their DNA, this is what I'm to do in the lives of others. And so I would just want to ask, how are you doing with making disciples? This is, by the way, what Jesus has asked us to do. When we enter into eternity and we're in the presence of the Lord Almighty himself, can you imagine what that's going to be like? And he asks, what did you do with what I asked you to do? You can't claim ignorance like, <laughs> that making disciple thing? No, I didn't hear about that. My church was talking about potlucks and games and how to have a lot of fun and find a little more meaning in your life. You can't claim ignorance. 
what are you going to do with what Jesus has asked to do? I will tell you, the crying need in our generation is for Christians to own the gospel and to move forward with the mission of making disciples of all the nations. Remember Jesus? Uh, he's out with the boys out on the boat. And he said this. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that's really what a disciple does. You're trusting in Jesus. You're following Jesus. He is transforming your life. And you are engaged in the mission of Jesus. And friends, when we are on mission, we know we are on mission when we're growing in Christ and we're helping others do the same. That's when we know we're on mission. We're growing in Christ. We're helping others do the same. So how do you practically do that? If this is what we're to do, this is the need of the hour. How do we go about making disciples? Well, if you've got your Bibles open to Romans 15, beginning in verse 14, it's like opening Paul's personal journal. And you just see right from the scriptures of how he went about this ministry. And we looked at five features of every developing disciple maker. Just to kind of review the first two from last week, there was a compelling vision for people maturing in Christ, verses 14 through 16. Remember Paul said in verse 16 that I have this object, aim, to present the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as complete in Christ, as a sacrifice, like a priest bringing an offering, I'm bringing the Gentiles who believe in the gospel, are transformed by Christ, and I'm presenting them to the living God. That explains my behavior. That's why I endure all this hardship, difficulty. I am maligned. I don't care. I have this grand vision. And we have a vision at Fellowship. Our vision is four words. It is growing deep and reaching out, just like a tree. Once a person places their faith in Christ, they're like a sapling, and your roots start going down into knowing God and His Word. And as that happens, your character is shaped, and you begin branching out and start bearing fruit in your relationships and your career. That is the vision. We want to see people truly know Christ and become fully mature, like we are this giant orchard of mature, fruit-bearing Christians. So you have to have a compelling vision. And then the second feature that we find in developing disciple makers we saw in verses 17 through 19, and that is that you are Christ-centered and empowered. Look at verse 18. He says, For I'll not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. You can't do this. That's why Jesus says, I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. You trust me, you engage, you live by faith, you enter into the lives of others, whether they be children, youth, college students, young adults, older adults, you engage, I empower. You trust me, you obey, you follow the word, I will empower, I will allow this to happen. And that's what you find. You find a Christ-centeredness. Remember how we talked about moving away from success to become significant? Success is when you're adding value to yourself. Significance is when you begin to add value to others. You're not so concerned about me as much as we are we. You go from success, nothing wrong with success, nothing wrong with making more money, having a higher position, more influence, nothing wrong with that. The problem is is when success owns you and that's all you live for. Use your success for greater significance. And you do so by trusting in the empowerment of Christ. That leads us to a third feature uh, that you find in every developing disciple maker. And that is that you have a clear sense of direction. That means that you actually have a plan. You know the principle, don't you? A failure to plan is what? A plan to fail. 
A failure to plan is a plan to fail. If you do not have a plan on how you are going to engage in the lives of others for their spiritual development, what's going to happen? Nothing. And this is what takes place. You don't have a plan, and you're involved in a church, and you hear about opportunities, you are sitting next to probably someone that really could benefit from your friendship and investment. But it's almost like you get used to floating on autopilot, and it just all passes by. And you miss one opportunity after another. you got neighbors and friends and a fellow classmate, and boy, that guy that you work with really could benefit from you taking him out to lunch and talking. But it just goes by the wayside. Paul had a plan. In fact, this plan is going to blow you away. He actually writes about it. He says, verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build another man's foundation. Okay? So he says, I've got a plan. My plan is this. I believe God is calling me to take the gospel to people who've never heard it. I want to go to regions of the empire that have never even heard the name of Jesus. Now, some people think like, well, if you've got a plan, that means you're not trusting God. Actually, you've got a plan. You pray, you ask, you seek God's face. Lord, what do you want me to do? And you move forward. Mindful, God can redirect. God can change it. It may not work out the way you would like it. The mind of man plans his ways, but his every direction is from the Lord. His every step, the Lord is the one who's in charge. So Paul says, I got this plan. I'm going to go to places where God's name is not even mentioned. I'm going to bring the gospel to people who have never heard. In fact, I see it as a fulfillment of what's written in Isaiah 52, verse 15. Look at verse 21. But as is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. And this quotation primarily refers to Christ's second coming, but its broader application is for those who will take the gospel to people who need to hear it. So that's my plan. And so he says, verse 22, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. I wanted to come to you, but I have been so busy with this that I've not been able to. But he says, I see a turning that's taking place in the ministry. Verse 23, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So wait a second here. Paul's saying, I want you to know about my plan. I do want to come to you. In fact, I've wanted to come to you for years. But I'm going to go 1,500 miles in the opposite direction because I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to talk about why he's doing that and, and about this amazing gift that he is going to present to the poor believers in Jerusalem. But he was, says, I want you to know something. I want to be with you. But I also want you to know that once I leave you, I'm heading off to the uttermost end of the empire, Spain. So the world as it was known at this time, one end of the empire was Spain. The other was actually considered India. And he says, I want to go to Spain. Now, for about since 200 B.C., the Romans had started occupying Spain. They, the Romans were really good at building roads, and they built roads everywhere. Paul's traveling on these roads. And he says, I want to go to Spain. Spain became a major place of commerce. They I mean, they had plentiful crops. And it also became a place where some really gifted people were living. It became kind of like a place of real influence. For instance... Spain's uh, greatest 
person that had influence in, in the Roman Empire probably was a guy by the name of Seneca. He was a philosopher. He also became the prime minister in Rome. And he is the guy who mentored a man by the name of Nero. And so they had writers and philosophers. In fact, later on, they actually had a couple emperors that came from Spain. Paul says, I want to go where the action is. I want to go to the remotest part of the empire. And so he says, I want to see you. And I'm only going to be with you a while because my plan is this. I'm going to actually head off to Spain. Now, he says he's doing something specifically. And that you find in verse 26, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. What had taken place is that there were these Gentile believers, okay? And they are existing in some of these different churches like Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi. And they had come to Christ. Most of them were Gentiles. There were some Jews among them. They believed Jesus the Messiah. And what they did is they heard about the great needs of, of Jerusalem, the believers there, and that Paul was actually involved in collecting money. And this is a rather significant offering. Second Corinthians 8 and 9 give a lot of detail to it. But Paul had been gathering funds. This was a significant gift that these Gentile believers were going to give the Jewish believers. And the need was great. In AD 58, you've got some pretty serious situations going on in Jerusalem. You've got widespread persecution. Most of the people that had come to Christ in Jerusalem were Jews. The Jewish people didn't think too kindly of you placing your faith in this Jesus and calling him Messiah. In fact, they would disown you. Some of them were losing, losing their property. Many of them had lost their jobs. Many were being abused. Some of them started losing their lives. On top of that, you got great persecution. You also have poverty, and you got everybody losing their job. And then, of course, you'd have these pilgrimages. This is pretty fascinating. Among the Jews, they'd have these different pilgrims. About three times a year, Jerusalem would just swell. And yet you had these believers in Christ, and they would engage people with the gospel, and people started believing that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and they decided to stay there. And they would be housed and homed by the folks that were believers that were already there. But they didn't have any resources. And so what took place is these Gentile believers brought together this amazing gift. And this gift had three purposes. One, it was to be an expression of love. Two, it was to be of practical relief. And three, it was to basically address a divide that was taking place in the early church. And that divide was this. There were Jewish believers in Jesus, and they were having some real hard times with these Gentile believers in Jesus. And a rift was started. You cannot help but when you read the New Testament to see how often this is addressed. Paul is always writing, writing about it in Galatians especially, but in Ephesians and uh, Romans. He's addressing the oneness of the people of God united in Christ. And it doesn't matter if you come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background. But for some folks, that was a big deal. And so God and his sovereign ways had the Gentile believers put together this amazing gift. And Paul says, I'm going to go. I'm going to make sure they receive this gift. And that's what he's actually saying here. He says, verse uh, 26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. All the apostles, Jewish in background, right? The early evangelists, 
the wealth of spiritual heritage they had from Israel. He says, because of that, they're indebted. And that's how they see it. And so he says, verse 28, Therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. Once I've made this gift, delivered it, I'm going to make my way to you. And But I want you to know, I still have a plan. I still want to go to Spain. Now, you know, Paul did eventually get there. He got to Rome. Do you know that? But not the way he was planning. He had a plan. And his plan was to go 1,500 miles one way, make sure this gift is received, interpreted correctly, they understand. He says, then I'm going to make my way to you. I'm going to go another 1,500 miles, about 3,000 miles to get to you. He did make it, but not the way he thought. You see, after he, uh, he knew that there was trouble brewing. Uh, he gets there. Uh, his life is threatened. Uh, he eventually becomes a prisoner of Rome. He's shipwrecked on his way to Rome as a prisoner. While uh, recovering from the shipwreck, he's on the island of Malta. He gets bit by a poisonous snake. No fun. God spares him. They all thought he was going to die. And he gets to Rome. But you know when he gets to Rome? He gets to Rome as a prisoner. He's under arrest. He's waiting to appear before the emperor. And I tell you this because when you make plans, God ultimately is the one who's in charge of how they're going to be carried out. And sometimes God makes radical changes. But you do need to have a plan. And so I'm going to ask you, what is your plan? What is your plan this summer to invest in the lives of others? Maybe just even one. Don't tell me, well, I'm going to wait to the fall. I'm on summer vacation. But when fall comes and the football season starts, man, I'm going to really get into high gear. And then I'm going to make my investments. No, I'm asking you, what are you doing this summer? Just ask God. He'll make it real clear. You see, one of the features of every developing disciple maker is that they have a clear sense of direction. But let me give you one other characteristic, and that is that they have character that models the way. Look at this. Look at verse 29. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul says, when I come, I, I'm going to come with the fullness of the blessing of Jesus himself. I am, I'm going to come to you in the fullness of the Spirit. I'm going to actually model maturity for you. I'm going to be walking in the Spirit. I'm going to be manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to be concerned about your well-being, and I'm going to live among you. And friends, that is the most influential way to reach people. It is to be a living blessing. It is to manifest the joy and the maturity of Christ, and you do so face-to-face, hand-to-hand, where you can engage in the lives of other people. And he says, it is so important for me to come to you. I'm asking that you too would even pray that this would become a reality. And he says in verse 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He says, I want you to pray that I can come. I want to live among you. And I urge you to pray because I'm going to face some pretty heavy-duty problems. He says, verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Speaking of the Jewish people who hated the whole idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And you believe that way? You become an enemy. 
Paul was a leading Pharisee. He had been trained under one of their top uh, rabbis, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And Paul, when he went from lead persecutor to kind of like lead believer in Jesus, that didn't go over so well among the Jewish elite. And he knew he was going to be walking right into like the teeth of a lion. He says, I want you to pray that I would be rescued from the disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, that they will receive this gift from the Gentiles with the intent in which it is given. And so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So he's saying, I want you to join in. And did you see, look at uh, verse 30. Pretty fascinating. He says, I want you to strive together. The, the word is soon agonizomai. Uh, agonizomai is where we get our word agonize. It's like athletic imagery, like you give yourself. And he says, I want you to pray with earnestness. When I think about my prayer life sometimes, and I, and I look at it, hmm, I'm not sure I'd like agonizomai prayers. Oh, there's room for improvement there. And then, of course, sometimes we just pray like, God, just give me a nice life and give me nice things and have a happy day. And that could be like a lot of folks' prayer life. Like, God, the celestial Santa Claus, just help me to have a nice day and give me some nice things. But what happens is, is that when you, when you realize the importance of prayer, you begin to engage in it. And let me just give you a pattern. As God brings things and people and situations to mind, use that as a cue to pray. Pray with earnestness. It's fascinating. Look at verse 30. Did you see the triunity there? The Trinity. You have our Lord Jesus Christ. You have the love of the Spirit. And you have strive together with me in your prayers to God. God the Father. God the Spirit. God the Son. The triunity of God. Who God really is. Would you pray with earnestness? Now you're like going, ah, you know, why pray? I believe that God's sovereign, like he's in control, and he's going to work it out. So what are my measly, weak little prayers? What are we going to do about anything? In fact, there's some people that put themselves theologically in a position why that's why they don't pray. They're like, well, God's sovereign. That doesn't matter. And then, of course, there's a lot of people, that, they just don't care. They don't really have a lot of spiritual priorities. It's not a big deal, so that they don't pray. In fact, you will find what is important to you by what you pray about, and you will find how important God and his kingdom is to you by the degree that you are praying. But if you can't answer the question, why pray? You probably don't. So why do you pray? Well, I'll tell you this. The reason that you and I pray is because it is God's sovereign means for his people to engage in his work. It's how God works through his people. It's the body praying about the needs, coming before the living God. We bring these requests, whether it be like a request like Paul's or for someone's health or for the gospel to go forth. Whatever it is, we are praying and we are involved in the work that God is doing. And I don't fully understand how that, how that all works other than the fact that it is centrally important. And you always see Paul asking people, would you pray for me? Please do. Why? Because that's how God accomplishes the work. And so he says, I want you to be fully engaged in prayer. I want to come before you because I want to model for you what it looks like to come in the joy of Christ. Remember, look at verse 32. He says, I want to come to you in the joy by the will of God. 
and find refreshing rest in your company. So how does Paul end up going to Rome? As a prisoner. How many of you would find that to be a rather joyous place to be in prison? Wow, look at zero. Hmm, I'm with you. Rather not be in prison, try to stay out, right? But, you know, it's interesting. When Paul comes to Rome, he comes as a prisoner. You know, uh, one of the letters that he wrote while he's in prison is Philippians. The book of Philippians, 16 different times, writing in prison, he writes about the word joy. In fact, if you want a one-word theme about the book of Philippians, it's joy. Where does that come from? Joy isn't found in your circumstances. It's found in the presence of God. That's where joy is. A lot of our life circumstances, tough, difficult. I got them. You got them. But you know where we can find joy? Joy is found in the presence of Christ. And so he says, I want to come and I want to be with you. I want to live among you. I want to show you what joy is. Now, it didn't work out the way Paul planned. But he says, I want to be with you. Friends, The reason that he wanted to be involved in their lives personally is because that is the most effective way to help people grow. There's a surgeon and writer by the name of Dr. Atul Gawande, and he's writing on the subject of of change and how people change. And he's really kind of looking at like how heavily we rely on technology and media and programs and, and thinking that it's just like real quick, change just happens instantly, but he says... He's finding that there is a much better way, and that better way is person to person. Let me just read you an excerpt of what he wrote. In the era of iPhone, Facebook, and Twitter, we want frictionless turnkey solutions to the major difficulties of the world. Hunger, disease, poverty. We prefer instructional videos to teachers, drones to troops, incentives to institutions. People in institutions may feel messy and backwards, but technology and programs are not enough. Mass media can introduce a new idea to people, but people follow the lead of other people they know and trust when they decide whether to change. This is something he said that I learned, that that sales people have learned, and they understand well. He said, I once asked a pharmaceutical rep how he persuaded doctors, who he says, who are notoriously stubborn, those are his words, not mine, to adopt a new medicine. Evidence is not remotely enough, he said. You must apply the rule of seven touches. So this pharmaceutical rep tells him this. Personally, touch the doctors seven times, and they will come to know you. And if they trust you, they will change. That's why he stocks the doctor's closets with free samples in person. Then he could poke his head around the corner and ask, so how did your daughter Debbie's soccer game go? And eventually... This can become, hey, have you seen this new study on this new drug? How about giving it a try? As the rep had recognized, human interaction is the key force in overcoming resistance and speeding change. It's the personal touch. It's the interaction. You want transformation? Were you sick of all the different statistics that I read you at the beginning of this message? I am. What's missing? Probably the personal interaction, modeling the faith. I remember when we were able to go down to Mexico on our mission trips, and we'd bring doctors and dentists and translators and BBS specialists and uh, try to have a guy like me doing evangelism and training pastors. And I was coming back, and we were in our vans. We'd bring our families there, and I'm talking with Veronica Pacheco. And uh, I was like, you know, we'd be far more efficient 
if we didn't bring our families. I mean, like, I'm thinking of my families. We were generally the weakest link, you know. Every time we'd go in these remote villages in, in Mexico, some of which had never had a doctor even in them, we'd have these makeshift pharmacies, and, like, there'd be all of our people that we brought, the strong Americans, they'd be all sick on the floor, and they'd just kind of lay there. We'd always have a few of them real sick that way. And I was like, this is inefficient. This doesn't work. We'd be, you know, I'm always thinking, we could do this better by not bringing our families and all these plastic bags for other purposes that they'll not get into. And then Veronica told me this. She says, well, yes, that's true. But when we bring our families, it tells the Mexican people we are coming with our whole heart. Friends, that's how we have to come. We've got to engage, not just dispensing information. People aren't projects. We're investing in the lives of people. And you do that by modeling and being face-to-face. And now, that doesn't mean that you've got to be perfect. Come on now. We all have major imperfections. There's only one perfect person in this room here today. And it's Jesus, right? All the rest of us, man, we are really bad off sinners, right? Got all sorts of inadequacies. It reinforces the need of the gospel in our life that we need Jesus. Friends, I'll tell you what. If I let my inadequacies, which are many, right? It's just like, that's it, man. You can't do it. I'd do nothing. We've got to trust the Lord. We've got to walk by faith. And what's happened is we have divorced the teachings of Jesus from the methods of Jesus. And yet we'd like the results of Jesus. Jesus' method was to engage at a personal, relational level. When Jesus said, make disciples, he was basically saying, I want you to do what I've done with you. Paul didn't just go and teach a Sunday school class or a nice little message and just kind of walk away. Those things are nice and important. Don't get me wrong. Probably the most important ministry is the personal involvement where you are modeling what it looks like to live in the grace of Christ. This is how the Old Testament, you look at some of these Old Testament leaders, Paul, this is how he did it. Today's Father's Day. You want to be a father of influence. You want to move from success to significance. You engage with your life. Of course you're not perfect, right? None of us are. But you just show them how that really drives you to Jesus. And you don't let your past or your problems keep you engaged in the ministry that Jesus has called us to. This is the method of Jesus. It is intentional, relational discipleship. Um, there's a couple guys in our church. If you were at the men's retreat, you heard Jerry Snyder actually talk about his relationship that he's got with John Park. John has been meeting with Jerry. They've been doing it for about a couple years. Jerry, four-minute miler from A&M. He's meeting with John. They talk about everything, life, ministry, parenting, how, how to be a good husband. They're reading the scriptures. They're praying together. Well, if you know John or if you on our prayer chain, you know that uh, John's had a really difficult week. In fact, he's been in the ICU. And uh, I'm talking with John. Uh, he's Thursday night. He's like, well, you know, Jerry and I get together every Friday at Panera, 8.30. We're going to be having to not meet at Panera tomorrow. Well, guess what happened? You know what? They got together on Friday in the ICU at Providence, not Panera. And John said, whoa. I talked to him afterwards. He says, well, we got together. It wasn't as deep 
as it usually is because I was coming out of anesthesia. And I said, it probably was more deep, man. The doctors tell me, man, when people come out of anesthesia, they see some really crazy stuff, and apparently pastors are the worst. So if I'm ever there, do not visit me at that time, right? Okay? And I'll tell you something. Here are two guys that get it. They understand the importance of making disciples and being involved at that kind of level. Friends, that's where transformation takes place, when the gospel of grace is embraced and believed, and we engage in the ministry and the strength of Jesus. You see, we are on mission when we're growing in Christ, and we're helping others do the same. And next week, I want you to come back, because I'm going to show you the fifth element of every developing disciple maker, and that is they have a collaborative mindset for multiplying disciple makers. You're going to watch Romans 16, and it's going to be like fireworks just exploding in your, in your mind when you see this is the ministry, a ministry of multiplication. And friends, I'll, I'll just tell you, for me personally, I believe I am the product of men who actually understood the importance of disciple making and invested in my life. I'd put myself as probably low probability that it amount to much, and high risk. When I came to Christ at the University of Oregon, lots of rough edges. Let's not get into a lot of details, all right? These guys started pouring into me, and they continue to do so. And friends, I find myself in different situations. I learned, I learned about what marriage is supposed to look like, how to raise kids, how to lead, how to deal with difficulty, trouble. You know, I, I think about this. How would Scott handle this, or John, or Doug, or Tyler? What would they do in this situation? And I think back to conversations, and, and I think back to what I saw modeled in them. And friends, when we are, on, we are on mission, when we are growing in Christ, and we're helping others do the same. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. And I'm going to give you just a minute just to ask God, Lord, how do you want me to respond to what you have written in your word? And Lord, for the person who has come here today who is far from you, but today you have their full attention, and they really want to know forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ, would they simply pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and my sin, and I trust in Jesus. Would, would you be the Lord of my life? I need you. And Lord, for all of us, may we be everything you've desired, both as individuals and as a church. Help us to take you at full value. Lord, would you empower and enable. May we be everything you've intended in Christ. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.